LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Dominic Frisby who joins us to discuss his book Daylight Robbery, How Tax Shaped Our Past and Will Change Our Future. The world around us appears to be falling apart. Political discord, protests and social unrest, riots and wars, climate chaos and economic collapse. Incompetent, corrupt or tyrannical governments often have a hand in this gathering global disorder funded to a great extent by extracting money from their populations under threat of force. Death and taxes are our inevitable fate. We've been told this since the beginning of civilization. But what have we stopped to question our antiquated system? Is it fair? And is it capable of serving the needs of our rapidly changing modern society? Daylight robbery traces the origins of taxation from its roots in the ancient world through to today. It explores the role of tax in the formation of our global religions, the part tax played in wars and revolutions throughout the ages, and why, at one stage, we paid tax for daylight or for growing a beard. Ranging from the despotic to the absurd, the tax laws of the past reveal so much about how we got to where we are today and what we can do to build a system fit for the future. Hello and welcome, Dominic, and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Dominic, today we're going to be discussing your latest book just about to come out. It's entitled Daylight Robbery, How Tax Shaped Our Past and Will Change Our Future. Before we dive into that, just give listeners a little bit um, of information about your background, your work in general. Well, I have a very, uh, I suppose you'd call it an unusual background in that I started out my professional working life as a voiceover artist and I've been the voice of many things over the years and then I sort of in my mid to late 20s took up stand-up comedy and I made a bit of money and I was looking for a way to invest it this is we're in the 2000s now and uh, um, I started hearing all these interesting people on the internet uh, who I was I thought I'd really like to talk to them and get some financial advice from them Uh, so I rather like you I started my own podcast as a means to talk to them and one of the people I interviewed was a lady called Merrin Somerset Webb who offered me a job writing at Money Week this would have been about 2006 2007 so I started doing that Mr Freelancer doing everything and you know before long I suddenly realized I was both a stand-up comedian and a financial writer which is a sort of unusual combination but it sort of vaguely works and uh, I've now written uh, you know, I write a weekly investment column for the, for Money Week, and I've written for all sorts of other publications, and um, just published, as you say, my third book uh, called Daylight Robbery, uh, all about the past, the present, and the future of taxation. And the reason I've written 
uh, about taxation is is I um, I used to think it was money, but now I think it's almost more important than money is tax. And if you think of a zombie film, um, there's always there's a, a, a common trope in a zombie film is this idea of the zero patient, and this is the 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 patient where the zombie virus started, and the hero of the of the story in order to save the world has to somehow get to the zero patient and either kill it kill him or her or the zero patient will have the antidote with which he can save the world but one way or another you have this idea of the zero patient and i've i'm convinced that in a society tax our system of tax is the zero patient and everything starts from there so if you can fix our system of tax you know you 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 change society for the good and if you have a bad system of tax then your society is 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 destined to underachieve now in a nutshell there you basically outlined why this issue does actually affect everyone and in my recorded introduction i've tried to do the same in my own way to make people understand this is not a dry financial podcast for professionals. But for many people, the average person who might stumble upon this, they might be thinking, oh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I pay a bit too much tax. I'd rather pay less. Uh, who wouldn't? There may be some people thinking, well, no, you know, I, I'd be happy to pay more tax and we should definitely tax the rich. You know, that's one of the great, you know, modern tropes of our, uh, in our contemporary media. But just expand on upon what you've just said as like why is anyone starting to listen to this why should they stay tuned why does this in fact affect everyone so profoundly well unfortunately you know the average person doesn't have it within his or her power to change our system of tax but it is quite easy it's not the most impossible thing for a politician to do you know i think a lot of politicians express frustration that they're so powerless to actually change things but our system of tax they do in theory have control over it and so it is within their power to reform it but what you know in the enlightenment for example the morals of tax were were um heavily discussed and you know now people just don't talk about tax in the way that they once did and, you know, the ancient Greeks actually thought that the freedom of society could be measured by its system of taxation. And there is a d direct correlation between the two. So my first thing is just simply to get people talking about taxation again. Now, this isn't like talking about your VAT last month's VAT return or something, because I, I think that's a pretty dull subject. But the impact of taxes on the course of civilization is one of the most interesting once you start looking at the world through this prism of taxation so many things start to make sense why things happened as they did why the world is as it is today how the world's going to look in the future um you know taxation in a funny kind of way is destiny and you know every great event in history if i i challenge you to name me a great event from history and i i almost Without exception, there is some kind of tax story at its heart, and it's often an overlooked and untold tax story. But without that tax story, that event would not have happened in the way that it did. It would have turned out very differently. So, go on, I'll challenge you, Greg. Just name me any event from history. Um, oh. Just the first thing that comes into your head. Death, Doesn't have to death, of, death of Jesus. <laughs> the death of Jesus. Okay. Well, at Jesus' birth, 
and at his death, there is a tax story. Um, Mary and Joseph, the only reason they were in Bethlehem uh, when Jesus was born was they were there to pay taxes. Augustus had sent out his census. So if without you know, tax requirement. They would never have been in Bethlehem. Jesus would not have been born in the way that he did, and Christianity could never have evolved in the way that he did. So there's a tax story at his birth. At his death, the charge for which he was eventually um, uh, crucified was, you know, th this whole thing of, uh, of being a false king. The the Romans were pretty tolerant of of other religions uh, there were some like Judaism they pretty ruthlessly put down but others they were um they were pretty tolerant about but it, but people claiming to be a king was a serious crime as um far as they were concerned because there another king had the power to levy taxes and that was a threat to roman tax revenue and and roman control so the crime if you like for which jesus was eventually crucified um roman citizens couldn't be crucified um, only non-Romans could be crucified and they could only be crucified for one of three crimes. One was attempting to escape from slavery. And by the way, slavery itself is like a is a form of taxation in that, you, you know, you are 100 percent owned. Your labor is 100 percent owned. Highway robbery was another crime that you could be um, crucified for. And the other was piracy and sedition. And, you know, the famous line, you know, the mob when they brought Jesus before um, Pontius Pilate they cried we found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute i.e. tax to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king and sedition was the charge for which he was eventually crucified and Jesus encouraged that sedition by encouraging non-payment of taxes so you know Jesus's birth and his death there's a tax story and I, I just think that's incredibly interesting. You can go all the way back to the beginning of human civilization, and there were taxes in ancient Mesopotamia, the tithe. It was called Ezretu, and you go all the way through history, and there's and and that that tithe evolved, and the the idea of the tithe was common to pretty much a, every ancient culture, and you go back through history, and there has never been a civilization without taxation of some kind. Now, the libertarian will tell you that taxation is theft, and it is theft because you're having things taken from you against your will a lot of the time. Um, but the social democrat or the socialist will tell you that tax is the price we pay for a civilized society. And there is some truth to that as well. You know, both of those statements have some truth to them. And this is the ascent, the, the eternal moral dilemma. Is tax theft or is tax the price we pay for a civilized society? Now, I'm sure, you know, at the moment in the UK, we're 45, 50% of what we earn over the course of our life is taken from us in taxes. You know, that's half of your labor is owned. And, you know, half of the serfs labor was owned. And in terms of your working week, you spend half of your working week working for yourself and half of your working week working for the government. Well, the serf was the same. He spent half of his working week working for his lord and half the other half of the working his labor. He could till the, uh, his little strip of land and, and keep the, the, the produce of that land for himself. So in terms of time spent, um, our existence is not that different from uh, the life of the surf. Obviously, there's, uh, uh, I think our existence today is considerably better. You know, so tax is this, it occupies this enormous space in our life. And tax is power. 
you know, if a king or a god or, a, or a, sorry, a king or a emperor or a or a, a government, if they lose their tax revenue, they lose their control, and taxes are by the wi- the means by which they exert control. So it's just this incredibly interesting subject, in my opinion. To finish off, I think the idea of of taxation predated civilization a lot of anthropologists agree that this idea of the of the the duty the sense of duty to the greater collective existed in the hunter-gatherer societies that predated um civilization and remember taxation isn't just money it's a a share of your labor or a share of your produce or a share of your profit you know these are all different ways by which you you have taxes levied against you well the root um of my feeling about this subject go right back to my early life as early as I can remember really and when I first discovered that I was going to have to go to school um, at age three or whatever I went to some sort of preschool thing and I put up tremendous resistance to this because I just wanted to stay at home with my lego and books and whatnot why do I have to go and join this collective thing that you know my parents didn't even seem to know very much about and that later crystallized into this idea which you could apply to school or tax or all these other sorts of things that we apparently get born into. And that is, quote unquote, where did I sign up for this? I didn't agree to this. But, you know, you're born into a society, wherever it happens to be, you know, communist, fascist, socialist, you know, democratic, whatever it happens to be, all these different flavors of societies and civilizations. And some people go on to, to change the societies that they're in, and sometimes in profound ways. Other people just go along to get along and they think that's just the way things are. But I wanted to know where did I sign up for this? And that, for me, encapsulates the sort of tension around all of this, which, as you say, there's this, the quote in your book, actually, is the, the duty to the greater collective, which is, I think it's a natural human impulse. I think we're cooperative beings, you know, cooperative creatures. Yeah. And we get a lot of great things done by cooperating but it's like, where do you draw the line? So the question is always bit. I'm all for a voluntary society, you know, where any, anything that you take part in, you agree to. You know, yeah. some of it you might, you know, through gritted teeth and say, okay, we do have to have a rubbish collection. So, you know, I'll chip in. That's fine. But the problem is that you get people who want different things. Some people yeah, no. they want yeah. different amounts of money allocated to different things. So that is the tension. How do we organize that so that lots of different people for perfectly good, well-meaning human beings that they can be catered for to work with people who they agree with to some extent and not have what we see, which is society's riven by, no, we should do this and we should do this and we shouldn't do that, often orientated around money. Well, what I was actually going to say in my big, long uh, opening rant, but I forgot to get to the point, <laughs> was that um, I think if you said to most libertarians, you know, we're at 50% at the moment, if you said to most libertarians... I'll offer you 20. You know, mm. we take it just straight away. We go, all right, you can have 20% of my labor. If you, if you leave, as long as you leave the, yeah, the, the other 80% to me, that's fine. So, uh, you know, so, so it is a sort of, it is, it is an imposition, but, um, and in fact, an impost, same word, is, you know, you impose a tax and taxes were called an impost. Um, it's, it's amazing the number of different words there are for tax, by the way. And we can talk about that in a second. But you're absolutely right. Now, ancient Greece, um, in ancient Greece, most taxes were voluntary. Now, that is a, a lovely idea. This is w- what pisses a lot of um, people off, and me included, is, you know, I never signed up for this. I was born in Britain, and 
you know, I don't think the NHS is the best way to provide the best possible health care for the most possible people at the lowest possible price. Um, but if I say that, I'm, I'm told I'm immoral for thinking that thought. You know, I get the modern equivalent of being excommunicated. You know, so I didn't sign up for the NHS. So I didn't sign up for state education. And, and you know, I educated my um, kids privately. And so I paid effectively paid for education twice. And, uh, you know, some guys said, well, you earn more money than the average person. So you, 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 that's your problem. And I'm like, well, yeah, but I still had to pay for it twice. And that's incredibly wasteful. And I could have spent that or invested that money much better. So, uh, yeah. So, I mean, it is the fundamental, um, it's the never ending argument. And it will blight not just democracies, but it will blight, you know, every society. But, you know, look to the ancient Greeks, one of the most enlightened societies in history. And taxes were voluntary. They had this thing called liturgy. And this idea of, of sacrifice was embedded in the, in the Greek psyche. And, you know, all the early Greek myths, there's always this thing of sacrifice, Prometheus and Athena and various others. And, and, and duty to the collective, but it was the rich in society were expected to shoulder the burden of the city's needs because, you know, of the, um, disproportionate amount of the wealth of the city that they owned. But if, if a, a street needed building or a bridge needed building or the, they needed a new building or that they needed a new warship or it was deemed that there should be some games or a, a theater festival or whatever it is, the the rich were expected to take this thing on in a system called liturgy. And not only were they expected to fund this undertaking, they were expected to carry it out themselves. So they would have had control over it. So they wouldn't be giving their money to a bureaucrat to spend on their behalf. They would be managing the purse strings themselves. And, you know, presumably, they'd in many cases, they'd got rich because they were competent. One expects that you know, when they're risking their own capital on this venture, they will carry it out better than somebody else would spending their money. And at the end of the day, their reputation was on the line. If they put on a really good games or they built a really good bridge or they built a really good warship or whatever it was, you know, that ship would have their name on it. That bridge would have their name on it. And, and so it was in their interest to do it as well as possible. And Pericles, the famous old Greek king, you know, he really exploited the, the liturgical system for his advantage. It helped him take control of Athens. And, you know, I'm sure it got corrupted. It eventually died out with the Peloponnesian War. But, you know, the taxes became obligatory, as they always do. It's always war that's the problem. But, the, you know, the, it was a beautiful system. And there's, you know, if, if I, it's really hard to get from where we are to there. But if I were starting from scratch, I would look to be able to do something like that. Well, yeah, some of what you say was echoed a little bit later on in uh, times that maybe uh, listeners can identify with a little more. I'm thinking now of some of you know the friendly societies in Victorian Britain. Sure, some of the great friendly societies were wonderful, and some and of the great know, industrialists Victorian... as well. You know, like I'm thinking yeah. of you know the um, Carnegie and people out now. We're not saying anything about conditions for workers per se here. We're just talking about that uh, voluntary, independent contributions to society. Yeah, but I mean, conditions for workers were worse. Of course, they were because we were 150 years more backward. The, the, you know, I mean, Victorians were one of the most charitable, gracious, 
societies that we ever experienced. Now, there are all sorts of horrors in, you know, Victorian slums and so on. But it was also one of the, in terms of improvements in standard of living, it was one of the greatest periods of progress ever. And, you know, particularly in Britain and America, which had very low levels of tax. In 1900, tax was 10% of GDP compared to 50% now. And, and, you know, it was an extraordinary period. And, and uh, you know, the, some of the greatest Britons that ever lived were, 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 you know, lived in that period. And it was, it was that low tax, high levels of freedom, individual responsibility, which leads to innovation and experimentation and, and um, invention and all these kind of things and trade and commerce and exchange. And that's how we progress. And it's just a wonderful time in terms of human progress. I mean, we... E- we can't build a house today as well as they built that back then. No, absolutely we cannot. I mean, the, uh, we look, have to look at the housing stock I mean, in lots of parts of the world, but in Britain particularly, like what, what is there most of remaining from the distinct you know, architectural time periods? And it's Victorian. And if you give um, also that a lot of it was, in my view, needlessly demolished um, at various times, not just talking about, about by the Nazis, but you know, by the British government. I mean, um, what were they thinking? Mm. Just build, if you don't like it, go and build something else somewhere else. Leave that. That's nice. Now, you mentioned the NHS um, a few moments ago, and that's a very emotive subject for all sorts of reasons. For, for listeners outside of the UK, that's simply the National Health Service in the UK, which is free at the point of use, as they call it. But of course, nothing's really free. It's just a question of who pays for it. That emotive language around uh, these national institutions, you know, like public transport's another one. Is very much I was on Radio 4 the other day and I said I don't agree with state education. The woman called me repugnant. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, which is it's just bizarre because that doesn't mean that we shouldn't there shouldn't be any state education, but it's just like, well, you may not want to choose that. But around the issue of taxation at the minute, and almost everyone listening to this, I'm sure, will be familiar with the issues around corporate uh, tax um, avoidance, which is, gets, uh, conflated with tax evasion. There's a lot of talk about tax shaming now and, you know, the super rich and, um, offshoring money. It, meanwhile, things like the National Health Service and all these other public services are apparently in crisis. And if we could only get some of Amazon's money or Starbucks money or Google's money or Facebook's money, then that could be channeled into that and it would all be fixed. So whatever the actual facts in these cases or whatever the situation actually is, it's clouded in a fog of emotive language and name calling. And so it's very difficult to have an actual objective um, discussion about this. Yeah. I mean, it's just terrible and it's how manipulative people are. And, you know, it's why the election after election is a surprise because, you know, it's, I'm sorry to say this, but the left are more guilty than the right in this regard. You know, if you start saying stuff with which they don't agree, like, like I went on the BBC Radio 4 yesterday and there's some left-wing economist. I'm not even going to say her name. I'm not even going to give her the grace of giving her the bad publicity. But she goes on this rant on Twitter and she's obviously got the hump because she's written a book and she hasn't got on BBC Radio 4 start the week. She goes on this rant on Twitter and tries to get me no platform. You know, why is the BBC giving a platform to this right-wing bigot? And... um all this kind of stuff. And there's just a total intolerance of any other view apart from your own. And, you know, how can you attempt to have a sensible conversation and move the conversation forward and discuss 
if you will not tolerate any other views apart from your own being uttered. And so what happens is, you know, people are sick of being called, in my case, repugnant. <laughs> but, you know, they're just, you said something, you think, oh, immigration could be a bit of a problem in this country. Are oh, you racist? You know, there's all these smears and people don't want to be smeared. So they just keep their mouths shut. And then the election comes along and they vote for Brexit or they vote for Boris or whatever it is. And then the left get their knickers in a twist because the far right have taken over. So there's all these smears go on. And I'm really sorry, but that it, you, if you just use those kind of tactics, it's a form of censorship. And by the way, the censor is a Latin word. And the censor was a, a Roman magistrate who was uh, one of his responsibilities was um, supervising public morality. <laughs> but his other job was uh, doing the census. He was responsible for collecting taxes. So there is this relationship, even linguistically, between taxation and freedom, you know, censorship. So there's this weird, it's, I think it's really interesting that the word, um, you know, censorship involves the restriction of freedom, and so does tans taxation. And I find it really interesting that they both originate from the same word. Well, it's one of the reasons why we don't always get the best people in public life in this and most other countries as well. It's because it's not encouraged, you know. Um, it's, I don't think Boris Johnson's the best person out of any possible candidates to be prime minister of this country, but there he is. I just think um, who, 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 just out of interest, who are you, you going to vote in the election? I've never voted. Okay, but I'm playing my part in the unfoldment of the universe, and it does not involve voting for politicians. That's just my take on it. I've been called not exactly immoral, but words to that effect for not voting. But what what is the right if it's then compulsory? You know, is that the only way to change things? Vote for politicians? But Oh my God. Yeah, I mean, like, I've spent the last three elections drawing a massive cock on my ballot paper uh, without <laughs> wishing to be too crude. <laughs> you know, fine. I just don't, I, I, I just think by voting you're endorsing a system that's broken. Um, and this general election, I was at first quite excited about it. I mean, I don't know if you're a lever or a remainer, but I'm a lever. And I thought this general election was quite important because it was going to fix everything. But I'm really quite disappointed in that, you know, the Tories have quite clearly revealed. I know the Tory party's got, you know, has been taken over and there's new people running it and so on and so forth. But, you know, they're pledging all this spending. Uh, you know, somebody's got to pay for that. And, you know, this is the problem is, is politicians take on these, make these promises uh, in order to win votes. The obligations and, you know, the Tories are going to walk this election anyway. They didn't need to make all these promises. The obligations then have to be met. And that means, you know, that it's the, not the politician who pays. It's the people, and you know, through higher taxes. And, and it, it, it kind of gets my goat. And anyway, but the, the Conservatives had three years to deliver Brexit. You know, one of the beauties of Brexit, as far as I'm concerned, it has pulled the curtain back on the British establishment and revealed how totally bent it is and what total contempt it has for the people. And, and what a sham this idea that Britain is democratic. And the one, um, uh, like saving grace from it all was, was Nigel Farage, who came along with the Brexit party and was a huge champion. And you thought, finally, we're going to get rid of this bent two-party system and we're going to get some change. And there was a real sense of optimism. And um, 
I just think it's really sad that the, the Brexit party's faded away. And, you know, he, he, I, I think he decided there was a genuine chance that we go to second referendum. You know, the Tories wouldn't get a majority without him. And so if that's the real reason he stood down, I don't know. But they've just completely disappeared. The Tories have been rewarded for failure. And, and I just think, you know, they're going to control British politics for another 10 or 12 years. And I just think the wrong people are controlling it. And, and, you know, the essential, um, breaking away from this two party system that I hope Brexit would deliver is not going to happen. Well, it's going to be like one party and five shit ones. <laughs> well, we'll see what happens soon enough, won't we? As I began to learn about tax as I was growing up, uh, cause I studied economics at school. That was a waste of time, but it did get me thinking about a few things. Two things became foremost in my mind that I objected to. Uh, one was, I think we're talking about the UK now, but this applies in a lot of um, uh, countries around the world, is that there's a general, there's lots of different taxes for different things, but the general income tax, which is most, most tax that people pay, is there's a big pot that's used for all sorts of different things, and we have very little control over what's done with our money. And that, that was one of my main objections. They take all this money and they can spend it on whatever. They'll let me tell you what they're spending it on. You can get a breakdown of uh, budgets and expenditure. But for people, for example, who don't want it spent on war, have no control over that. And uh, whatever it is you don't like or you do like about what the government's doing with the money, it's very difficult to directly control that because it's just all rolled into general taxation. And all sorts of obje- obje- objectionable things are included in that. And the other is that taxes ultimately will be taken by force and if you take refusal to pay to the hilt you will die they will kill you and i've said this to people and say oh don't be stupid you know you just get fined and maybe go to prison i'm talking about think about it you get your your tax bill you say i'm not paying this i object to it for the following reasons okay well Well, you don't even get the bill yeah, exactly. Taking its source. Exactly. But let's just say you get into a dispute. And let's say you're self-employed and you get into a dispute with HMRC. And yeah. they say, okay, you owe us this amount. Okay, you haven't paid on time. Here's a fine. Plus, you have to pay the amount anyway. Here's another fine. Another fine. You're still not paying. You're still not paying. You're writing them letters, emails. I object for this reason. Eventually, you'll end up in court. And it's like, okay, well, no more fines. You're going to get a um, suspended prison sentence. No, then you're going to get an actual prison sentence. And they come round and say, you're okay, you're due in court, you didn't show up. You've been sentenced to six months in prison starting now. You stay in your house, locked in your house, it's your property, I'm not paying the tax. They'll come and get you to take you to prison. And if you resist too much, they'll apply force. And if you keep resisting and keep resisting, it could result in your death. It's as simple as that. And it wouldn't take that long for that to happen. No, and and in fact... HMRC doesn't operate by the same rules as the rest of, you know, the whole thing about innocent until proven guilty and all of that. It's the other way around with HMRC. It's guilty until proven innocent. Exactly. Exactly. But the whole, the point, I think, and this is something a lot of people don't think about, is, you know, that pot of tax and you not having any choice or even knowledge about what it's being spent on. A lot of people just sort of say, oh, well, we know what it's going on. It's the NHS, whatever it happens to be. Uh, yes, a bit goes to the army, but I think if people actually saw what was happening with the money and how that fails to meet government um, expenditure, you know, how much they have to borrow to spend, I think that anybody who was able to sit down and really get their head around it would be appalled. Yeah, and borrowing is taxation without representation. It's a tax on the future. Uh, and, you know, 
uh, it's it's also taxation without representation because you're taxing people who haven't voted. Exactly. And we have a very curious situation now. It's one thing for tax to be whatever it happens to be in booming times, you know, when most people feel that uh, they're on the up, you know, even if they're starting at the bottom, if things are moving, the only way is up. But the situation we have at the minute is one, again, not just in the UK, but in many um, industrialized nations where declining living standards, purchasing power being eroded at the same time, working conditions becoming more onerous, a steady work harder to get, house prices rising. So, People are feeling, many people are feeling quite embattled at the minute. And of course, this aggravates the situation where it's saying, oh, the finger gets pointed at, at the super rich and corporate tax avoidance and, and yada, yada, yada. So it's everybody against everyone, really. And that's it. And again, that means we're not discussing, we're not thinking about it clearly. We can't actually see what the situation is. And I think, if anything, this is one of the things that your book's very good on, not just a historical context for all this, but just a bit of clarity. And I think in, in subjects that are not well understood, and that, because I don't think we're encouraged to understand tax and the inner workings of government. I think quite the opposite, actually. No, we're not encouraged. And, you know, that's another thing about this book is, is just, to, to, just to make people more aware of it and think about it and question it and um you know talk about it and you know it's quite evil what goes on in a, in a lot of cases and and it's and there's just so many interesting stories i just discovered a story this afternoon that i didn't even know and i wish i'd known about it when i wrote my book but there was a big group of people in um the late 18th century in britain who were opposed to the napoleonic war and they didn't and pitt william pitt who was prime minister at the beginning just raised he was famous for taxing everything um just like really stupid shit like you know signet rings there was a tax on on signets william pitt was notoriously inefficient with the public finances and he raised taxes and i think there was a famous quote of the day where that wherever there is an object he will tax it and he had taxed carriages, he taxed houses, windows, glass, horses, dogs, watches, coats of arms, all these different things. And one of the things he taxed in order to raise money uh, for his war was wigs, and in particular, wig powder. And because of his taxes on wig powder made uh, wigs so expensive, people started using flour instead. And then this, so this pushed up the price of um, flour. And there was, you know, real food shortages and food riots because the cost of flour was so high. That was, um, and, you know, a lot of it had to do with William Pitt's um, wig taxes. Anyway, there was this group of people who were opposed to the war, and I just forget their names, but they stopped wearing wigs and deliberately cut their hair short to make a statement. So it was a bit like, you know, the white feather or something in World War One. You had to have a license in some cases to wear uh, the, the wig and the license cost a guinea. And so and if you paid the guinea, you could wear your hair, your wig in this particular pigtail. And that's where we get the expression guinea pigs from. The eventual result of these guys wearing their hair short in, a, in order to make a statement, we are not paying this tax, we do not support this war, and that's where the fashion for short hair eventually came. So the wig tax actually changed the way people wore their hair and brought in an era of, of, of short hair uh, through the 18th century. 
And even like right up to like 1869, they still had this stupid wig tax, even though nobody wore wigs anymore. That's just how slow government is to get rid of a tax. Uh, towards the end of your book, and it's, it's by no means just a historical romp, uh, which it certainly is, you begin to talk about a lot of issues that are changing the tax landscape now, and this is happening globally. And there's a lot of developments that are going to be, initially at least anyway, outside of the control of nation states, governments, and there's a lot of potential. There's some risks and downsides here in all of this, but there's a lot of positives that may benefit the stealthy and the fleet of foot and those who are ahead of the game in the years to come. And I'm thinking here of the mobility of individuals to be able to live and work in different territories, in in multiple territories to move around. Uh, Technology is facilitating a lot of that. And the impact of automation and AI is changing all sorts of industries. And that's going to have knock-on effects for government as well. Cryptocurrency, which you've written a book about as well. The scalability of tech. So basically, government's tax bases are changing radically. It's not for the, to their benefit as well. And the, so talk about some of these developments, whatever your favorite points are. And the bottom line is that governments are going to have to do less. And that doesn't mean none of the things that, that people like from their governments or claim to like, but it just means that there are lots of things, lots of fingers in pies that they're going to have to get on involved with, basically. Yeah. Well, we often struggle to understand how government has got so big. And government has got so big because of the two world wars. It's very hard for governments to introduce new taxes in peacetime. You normally need some kind of emergency to get it through. And what happens is you, the emergency justifies the higher tax rates. And then after the war is over, after the emergency is passed, the tax rates never go back to where they were before the emergency started. They, they go to a, they, 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 they come back a little bit, but they settle at a much higher level. And war, gave rise to income tax. Prior to 1914 in the UK, income tax didn't touch ordinary people. It was only paid by the very rich and the same in America. First World War brought taxes to every man in in, um, England and then in in the US 1942 Revenue Act, World War II, brought income taxes to every man. Imagine that. You know, income tax is a very relatively new thing. And it's income tax has proved incredibly effective form of taxation because it is the responsibility of the employer to deduct the tax and pay it to the government before it even reaches the person who's done the work this is you know paye in the uk which came in shortly after world war ii and so income tax is what makes this large um social democrat society in which we live possible now the relationship 50% of government revenue in the developed world comes from income tax. 50%. Now, the relationship between employer and employee is changing. More and more people are not working for one uh, employer for an extended period of time, you know, often their whole life. More and more people have, have multiple income streams, more and more freelancers, the gig economy, contingent workers, um, and so on and so forth. I mean, I'm Mr. Freelancer. I've got about 83 different income streams. Now, these kind of taxes, taxing the gig economy, has much harder to tax than traditional the traditional relationship between income and uh, between employer and employee. 
And by 2030, Ernst and Young have estimated that half the global workforce will be freelance, will be contingent, half. And that's just the, the nature of employment is changing. We have more and more freelancers. Now, in addition to that, our tax system was built around a physical age, a physical labourer who is working in this place, a physical good that is being transported from this place to this place across a clear border. And the problem is, is the physical economy is still growing, but at nothing like the rate that the intangible economy has grown, the digital economy, the internet. And this is where the real economic growth is. That's what's attracting the most investment. That's what's attracting the most workers. More and more of us are working in this intangible economy. The, the market cap of the three largest companies in Silicon Valley is, is over 60 times higher than it was 30 years ago. Now, the real world economy has seen nothing like that growth. You just look, you know, companies like Google and Amazon and Facebook didn't even exist. 25 years ago, 20 years ago. I think Amazon is the youngest of those companies and it was founded in 1994. And governments have found it extremely difficult to tax the intangible economy. You know, whether it's Starbucks going, well, there's our shops there, but our shops don't pay any money because they've got to pay all these enormous uh, intellectual property rights. Uh, they've got to pay these enormous sums to use Starbucks um, brand. And so it's, you know, Starbucks brand name company which is offshore somewhere i think in holland or somewhere some low-tech jurisdiction that makes all the money you know google amazon has relocated itself to ireland ireland doesn't even have an amazon uh, uh, an apple shop and uh, uh, and yet a mac store there's no mac store in ireland that's that's what apple really thinks of ireland and yet they've put their whole business there and it's for tax reasons and just governments have found it really difficult to tax the intangible economy. And the reason is, is that the Internet is essentially a borderless um, medium. And I know there's like .co.uk and .com and .fr and .de and all the rest of it. But really, it's a borderless medium. And more and more workers are going to work in this borderless um, medium. And they're doing freelance work in this borderless medium. There are more and more digital nomads. And, and people go, ah, digital nomads. It's the fastest growing workforce. More and people, they, they start working from home. Then they go to the coffee shop. And then they start traveling. And it's not just digital nomads from the West going, you know, around Asia and so on. It's people from Africa and South America and Asia coming here. And it's a huge, huge workforce. And they're all, they all do things, their jobs in the digital economy and that doesn't require them to be at these premises at this time most of the huge amounts of their work they can do remotely they might be web designers or computer programmers or uh, whatever now um, you know graphic designers whatever it is and 50% of them already work in the crypto economy now the beauty of the crypto economy is you know for this borderless medium we need borderless money we need a borderless money system and, and Bitcoin and all its offshoots have provided that borderless money system. Well, it's much, much harder to control um, an economy when you don't control the money system. You know, the governments don't control banks. If you're not paying your taxes, the government can freeze your bank account. Good luck trying to freeze your Bitcoin wallet. So 
all these new economies, government, unless they change the way they tax, they are going to struggle to tax the intangible economy. And that means they are not going to be able to carry on operating and offering the same number of goods and services they currently earn because there will not be the revenue to pay for it. Now, there's going to be an almighty fight and you'll see this clamping down because government doesn't relinquish. It's not the nature of government to just give back it always grows and it clings ever tighter. So there's a big confrontation coming. I th still think we're many years away from that. And a lot of people, you know, there's this whole politics of envy that we have in the UK of why should this person get away with paying taxes and without paying taxes and I have to pay taxes. And I have a lot of sympathy for that and this idea that, oh, well, the rich have to pay all the taxes. But it's not that easy because all the, you know, it's quite easy to just base yourself in low tax jurisdictions and you're doing stuff that's quite legal. So there's this big almighty battle, and we're almost going to see two tiers of worker and two tiers of economy, the heavily taxed guy who's local, and then the more nimble guy who's, who's not local, who operates in the, in the intangible economy. And it means um, that many nation states won't survive this in their current form, and certainly many governments won't. And it's going to be very interesting seeing what plays out. But that is one of the big dynamics that you will see in the years ahead. <clears throat> and it's particularly, you know, when government currencies start to collapse under all this debt, which sooner or later they will. Yeah. And as we've alluded to a couple of times already, this is why you mentioned the, the you know, the politics of envy. Uh, we have so much demonization of some of these developments, you know, like cryptocurrencies and various borderless ways of working because you get a lot of national governments that will talk favorably about globalization, but what they really mean is, well, it's whatever it happens to be. It's something that they think will benefit them. But when it comes to individuals and independent groups taking advantage of some of the development we've talked about, then that's to be, if it's outside of their control, then that's to be, as I say, demonized and condemned. And we, we will see, as you, as we are already, attempts at coercive control uh, along these lines to try and put the genie back in the bottle, which, of course, you can't do. No, you can't. I don't quite know where it ends, but I think there's a big, big uh, standoff coming. And, I mean, one of the things that the sort of... You're seeing this big thing of tax shaming. You mentioned it earlier in the program, and that's going to be a big thing, is that those who break out of the system will be attacked by those in the system who think the system is right and you know they say we pay our taxes you should pay your taxes but there's no allowance for people like you who you know you never signed up for it exactly and it doesn't mean that that if you think that your government is inefficient or wasteful or corrupt or that you don't like having this big chunk of your earnings taken without your consent and unaccountably spent because yeah, you, I mean I could spend that, that money so much better but yeah but because you feel that that doesn't mean that you want to see old people dying for want of medical attention you don't want to see people lying in the streets because they haven't got a roof over their heads it doesn't mean that at all it just means that you know, there are ways to deal with society's needs and to look after those who need care and attention there, there are ways to do that so it doesn't but it, again these two things get put together they get conflated don't they if you want to avoid paying tax to the government then that means that you want old people to die on gurneys and hospital corridors or something yeah i mean who wants people to suffer i mean who actually wants that apart from the odd sadist 
Mm. You know, that's not just wanting less government and wanting, you know, there's this idea that the people will not be care. You know, human, you know, welfare, healthcare, education, these are essential human needs. They're not going to disappear if government doesn't provide them. So I just, it really pisses me off that, that, because I've just had it on this Radio 4 thing where people somehow think you've got some kind of abhorrent. You know, you know who the immoral ones are? The immoral ones are, are the people who defend the NA. Have you seen the latest one where all the, where is it? Not Midstaffs, there's another place uh, where all the kids, you know, died after childbirth unnecessarily just due to hospital errors. Now, and they, uh, you know, why would you, why are you supporting a, uh, a healthcare system that repeatedly does this? You're the immoral one. Um, in terms of the future, then we can expect some of the confrontations to be more than ideological. You know, there's all sorts of reasons why we're seeing increased protests and unrest in various parts of the world, political... Taxes behind almost all of them. Yeah, political upheaval. Now, you talk about... We don't have time to get into this history as such, but you talk a lot about the history of Hong Kong in your book in terms of like how things could be done differently. So what do you make of what's going on there at the minute? I haven't really followed it. Uh, I'm, do you know what? I can't comment on it. I can tell you that under the British, Hong Kong had the most fantastically designed... Uh, tax system tax never exceeded 14 percent of gdp uh, uh income taxes were only paid by the very rich uh there uh, i think about 40 percent of their taxation came through land value taxes um, not income taxes and economically hong kong was one of the glorious success stories of the second half of the 20th century and in fact it was so successful that singapore copied it taiwan south korea japan to an extent and china itself copied it shenzhen is a direct copy of hong kong and they all saw how successful hong kong was and they thought what's it doing and they were clever enough to ape it now the big big irony of all of this was hong kong wasn't a democracy it was an authoritarian british colony Mm. there were no elections but the the funny thing was is the British let Hong Kong get on with it. It was Britain was busy pursuing its own Keynesian ideology. The the Hong Kong governors were all Adam Smith's nuts, and they all pursued this uh, you know laissez-faire Adam Smithism. And as a result, Hong Kong's population grew by ten times, and its standard of living went from a fifth the size of England's in 1950 per capita GDP was about a fifth of England's, you know, per capita GDP in Holland at that, this point was, you know, on a par with most of Africa, to in the space of 40 or 50 years, to having a per capita GDP that was one and a half times the size of Britain. I mean, it's extraordinary. A further point touching on the point I made about um, unrest and, and upheaval, um, if you actually use the phrase young authoritarians in your book or not, but certainly I've got it in my notes and that came from somewhere, and we do see... I don't use it, but I rather like it. <laughs> well, along the quite often along the fault lines of climate change and environmental challenges, and these always, of course, have an economic dimension as well, and as you say, everything ties into tax, we do see the beginnings of part of a, a generation that will be very willing to be very draconian, I think, if they get into positions of power when it comes to certain measures, shall I put it like that, that would directly impact on uh, some of the changes that we've just been talking about, you know, in terms of working patterns, 
and technology facilitating certain things. Government tax base starts to crumble. There are certainly people coming through who uh, you'd have to, you know, you'd have to say where would they actually stop, especially if anything is done under the under the the umbrella of um, combating climate change, for example. It's almost like, well, we can go anywhere because that has to be dealt with. You know, who who wouldn't? Who amongst us is going to say, oh no, you know, we, I'm not giving my money for that. Well, there are some serious nutcases out out there, and and you know they've just had their heads, they've been indoctrinated with shit, and they're like the new Nazis. Some of them, you know, the 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 tactics they use, the 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 mentality they have, the way they just think everyone who doesn't agree with us is is evil in some kind of way. You know, some of these momentum guys, it's horrible what they're doing, and they think they're doing it for the good of justice, and the the tactics they resort to. And so, so at some stage, they've got to be blue-pilled or, or red-pilled, which, whichever, you know, they need, they've taken the wrong pill and they need to have the other one. But the, the you know, if they don't see the light soon, we've got some big problems ahead. So just to end on a positive note, apart from reading your book, what would you say to some of the, trying to be generous and trying to be constructive, what might, general message might you put to some of the people who might be your most vehement opponents currently if you were trying to have a a general you know reach out of the hand and say come on guys look if we can talk about this and do more of this you know we'll all come out of this a bit better you know it doesn't have to be the war of everyone against everyone that i mentioned earlier i say stop trying to control everyone live and let live Yes, well, I think that's probably a good point to end on, really. If we all did more of that, I think we'd be in a better place, wouldn't we? Uh, today, Dominic, we've been discussing your latest book that's entitled Daylight Robbery, How Tax Shaped Our Past and Will Change Our Future. That's widely available. I, I regard myself as a pretty good writer, but this is by far and away the best book I've ever written. And, um, you know, if you're in, it's just, I, and I'm not going on full ranty libertarian stuff in it. I've tried to re- write it for people who are just interested. But once you start to look at the world through the prism of taxation, taxes control. When you, when you look at the world through this prism, so much starts to become clear. And, um, you know, if any of your readers want to buy the book, you can buy a signed copy of me on, on my website or just Amazon or the audio book read by me is, is I'm very proud of that as well. Lifetime of voiceover experience has gone into that. But, you know, it's, it's the best book I've ever written. I'm very proud of it. Well, do share then just before we sign off. Uh, your actual website details and obviously uh, Twitter, anything else you might want to put out there? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I, I don't think I'm very good at Twitter, to be honest, but I, I'm on it and I basically use it to plug myself. <laughs> and my website is uh, dominicfrisbee.com. And if, you, if you're if you after a copy of the book, it's just go to dominicfrisbee.com slash blog and uh, you'll find it there. But I'm pretty present on the Internet. It's not hard to find me. I've got a YouTube channel with some very amusing videos as well. Well, once again, Dominic, thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you, Greg.